So today we're finishing up our study of the book of Daniel. We've called this series, A Christian in Babylon. Um, Since today is a day when many are missing just simply because of the weather, I want to take a moment before we get into the teaching today to address those of you who watch these uh, sermons online. Uh, If you make it a practice of worshiping with us online, whether live at 1015 on Sunday morning or you watch the service a little bit later, I want to encourage you to, uh, first of all, make in-person worship a priority if you're able. Um, But if you're not, uh, we want you to know that uh, in January, we're going to be switching our worship streaming system to a registration-based model. Uh, And that means that you'll be able to worship online. You'll just have to register to receive the link in order to watch worship online. This is to encourage people to be here and worship in person, but also that for those of you who are worshiping online, we can give you proper spiritual care. Uh, We want to know that you're worshiping with us. Now, for some of you, you might regularly worship online, and registering every week may seem like a big hassle. Uh, If that's the case and you worship with us regularly online, please reach out to us. Um, A contact form on the website is a great place to go, and we'd be glad to work with you to figure out a system um, for us to provide you proper spiritual care. The text that we're looking at today from Daniel is the end of the book, uh, the second half of Daniel's final vision, which spans over the last three chapters. So I'll read it for us. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself over every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep them through, a, uh, through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt, with the Libyans and the Cushites in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the sea at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust dust of earth will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, 
go your own way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. For the time that the daily sacrifice, from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of 1,335 days. As for you, go your way until the end. You will rest, and then at the end of days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. And so ends the book of Daniel. Um, of course, the visions of Daniel are difficult to parse through all the different pieces, and especially this last vision, just simply because the length of it is a challenge. And uh, just for the sake of time, and mostly also for the sake of, of making sure that you can walk away from, from today with some actual practical things to think about, and not just a, a litany of all sorts of different biblical arguments for different things, um, I want to condense what's going on in these chapters, and not just work through all the verses, but give you the main big ideas of it. And then after we do that, uh, I want to back up and look at the entire book of Daniel, kind of look at where we've been in this study of the book of Daniel and say, what was the purpose of this? What value did we receive from God and his word on the book of Daniel? Okay. So the text starts halfway through uh, chapter 11. Last week, I told you that chapter 11 of Daniel is just a God uh, correctly, accurately pre uh, predicting the history of the world powers from about 540 BC until Jesus comes. Uh, he works through the Persians, the Greeks, and uh, particularly focuses on these two groups called the, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Um, and again, you can read those chapters if you want to. I gave you notes on that last week. We didn't work through it, but uh, if you do want to see how amazing it is that God can predict things in the future accurately, hundreds of years in the future accurately. Um, you can look at that on your own time. But you need to know that that's what's going on in the background as we get into the text that we looked at, because uh, what, what Jesus is doing as he gives this vision to Daniel is he's using the picture of specifically a man named Antiochus IV Epiphanes as a, a picture of another character which he wants to tell Daniel about. So he says, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who he doesn't name, of course, because Antiochus IV Epiphanes has not come yet, but he describes in great detail, uh, he is a picture of a greater reality that is going to happen to the church. Uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes is a photonegative of a character called the Antichrist, who is going to come. Uh, do you understand the concept of a photonegative? A photonegative is the same picture, but all the colors are inverted. you understand this concept? So, and Jesus says to Daniel, look at Antiochus IV Epiphanes, this guy. He is a guy who is a political ruler who is going to use his political power to attack God's church. And that's exactly what happened. You can look up in the second century BC, uh, the terrible things that Antiochus IV Epiphanes did uh, to the church at that time. But I want you to see in him a photonegative. I want you to see a character who looks very similar but is inverted. Instead of being a political ruler who is going to use his power to attack churchly things, I want to tell you about a churchly ruler who is going to use his power to affect political things. And so he goes through a whole list of things that describe this character, this character called the Antichrist. Um, and I've actually worked through num a number of these things already uh, in other sermons that I've preached, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to work through all of them again. Um, but I am going to give you just a, a brief overview of this character of the Antichrist, because it, it is in the text, and, and we need to know what's going on with it. 
So the first thing we need to know about this character is, in the Bible, there are two categories of the term antichrist. There is one specific character who's called the antichrist, the most obvious embodiment of this spirit, and then there is a spirit of it which is manifest in all sorts of different places. Uh, The basic points of this uh, antichrist character is that he's a ruler in the church. He speaks for Jesus, but of course falsely. He forbids marriage of some people, and he changes doctrine and practice in the church. Uh, The spirit of Antichrist, in contrast, is anyone who denies the complete salvation offered by grace alone in Jesus. And so, really, what Jesus is doing is he's giving Daniel this picture into this character who is going to show up. Now, again, we're not going to work through all the details of that, but I want you to know that's what Daniel is talking about in this section when he describes all the different things that happen with the king, as he calls him in uh, verse 36 of the text. Uh, The last thing, though, that I want you to see uh, in this, because this is a question that sometimes people will bring up, is when is the Antichrist going to come? When is the Antichrist going to come? When is this going to happen? Um, There's some argument about this in Protestant Protestant churches particularly. Is the Antichrist a very end times reality, like it's going to happen right before Jesus comes back, or is it something that's happening all the time? Uh, We actually get some insight into that in the text, and so I wanted to share that answer with you. Uh, If you look at verses 5 to 7 of the text, uh, it says that Daniel looked, and there before him stood two others, one on this side of the river and one on the other side. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, so that's Jesus, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? So he's asking, when is this going to happen? Okay, when is this character, this Antichrist character, going to show up? Here's what Jesus says. He says, um, excuse me, the man clothed in linen, he's saying, it will be for time, times, and half a time. That's his answer. Now, of course, if you're not familiar with that phrase, time, times, and half a time, you're like, what on earth does that mean? Uh, It's actually, I think, pretty simple once you realize. Uh, First of all, we have to get the uh, the bigger concept of seven and symbolic numerology, Um, seven being God's completeness. Okay, so we've talked about this before. We've talked about 77s. We've talked about how Jesus says that you forgive your brother 77 times or 70 times seven. Um, God uses this number seven to talk about his completeness, okay? Then we get this phrase time, times, and half a time, which is three and a half, right? Time, times, and half a time. I can't do a half with my fingers, but you get the point, right? Three and a half. And what is three and a half? Well, three and a half is half of seven. And therefore, you're going to get three and a half being half of God's complete time, which is... Well, the New Testament, right? There are are two halves to the story of God. There's what we call the Old Testament, and then there's the New Testament, and Jesus is right in the middle. And so what Jesus is saying is this Antichrist character is going to be an entire New Testament reality. He's going to be in time, times, and half a time. Now, uh, what's the importance of all this for us? Uh, Simply to be conscious of this, right? Uh, We find out for the rest of the text that that God is going to conquer this character and and that he is not going to have ultimate power over the church, and that's all the good news. So when you you hear the term antichrist, what I want you just to think of is this is, first of all, a character that we need to be conscious of, we need to be aware of, because he's in the church and he's going to be spreading lies about what the scripture says, and we also have to be uh, aware of the, the spirit of antichrist, which can live in all of us, that hates the free grace of God, that you are completely forgiven and loved, regardless of your behavior, because of what Jesus has done. We have to be conscious of all that, but then also know that, that Christ is going to win, right? Like we read in, in Revelation chapter 18. So that's the first portion of the text, but then I want to focus mostly on what happens in chapter 12, because that's where the comfort in this text comes for us. Jesus says that at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. Uh, We met Michael last time. Uh, We met Michael and we found out that he was uh, an angel who was guarding over God's people. 
So we know that God is going to send his angels to protect his people. He says, there will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then, which is the New Testament era where God's people are in tribulation, right? This is what the book of Revelation says as well. There's going to be suffering, persecution in the church. And while the angels are going to protect us from the ultimate demise of rejecting Christ and going to hell forever, um, it's still going to be difficult. Until the end, and when Jesus says, At that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book of life, will be delivered. Now, you heard me mention this to the kids in the children's message, but this book of life concept is really a beautiful picture. What Jesus is saying is that through all the struggles of false doctrine and persecution in the church, what you should be thinking about is the fact that your name is written in the book of life. The book of life is a rich concept, like I said. It shows up a couple places in the Bible before uh, this section. A place to look first is the book of Exodus. Uh, The Lord is talking to Moses, and he says, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So he has a book, and the people who are not qualified to be in this book are those people who have sinned, who have disobeyed God and his law, who have, have hated their parents or hated their body or someone else's body, have committed sexual sin, have, have stolen or cheated or lied or coveted what was not theirs, who have rejected God and his word, who have not thought it to be very important or worth following. None of those people are allowed to be in Jesus' book. And he, he doubles down on this. This is Psalm 69. He says, may they, that's the unrighteous, be blotted out of the book of life and not listed with the righteous. Psalm 69 says the same thing. The only way you're in this book is if you're righteous, if you're perfect, if you've never failed to keep God's law. And that can be terrifying, right? When you think about your life and and I think about my life, like that's not what my life looks like. I fall short of the glory of God in so many different ways. I'm not conscious of God and his word all the time. I don't give God a good reputation with my behavior. I don't care to follow my authorities all the time. I I don't treat my body with with the the type of behavior that God would would have me treat this temple that he's given me. I'm not completely free of sexual sin. I'm not not completely free from greed or or from deception, from wanting things that that don't belong to me, that God hasn't blessed me with. And, And I'm sure you can find examples like that in your own life. By our nature, we're not allowed in the book. By our nature, we should not be saved. We should not be loved by God. But the message of the gospel, the good news, is that because of Jesus, our names are written in this book. That because Jesus took our sin on himself on the cross, therefore your sin is no longer credited to your account, but instead Jesus gives you all of his perfection. See, Jesus was perfect. He he lived according to God's law. He was always conscious of God. He was respectful of his authority. He treated his body as a temple. He was faithful to all the things that God asked him to be. And then, as the book of 2 Corinthians says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, to take on our unrighteousness, to bury it in the ground in his grave so that it would no longer be on our account. And then it continues... So that in him, in Jesus, we would become the righteousness of God. Not just have it, not just possess it, but become it. Like God looks for righteousness and he sees you and he's like, there it is. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. And so because of Jesus, your name is written in the book of life. Jesus makes this very obvious to his disciples, actually in Luke chapter 10. Uh, Jesus sends his disciples out 
And he sends them on an evangelism mission. Go start sharing this message of the kingdom with people. And they come back to him and they say, there are amazing things that are happening. As, I preach, as we preach the gospel of the kingdom to people, people are being saved. They're having their lives changed. Even people who are possessed or afflicted by demons, they're having them all driven out. And Jesus' answer to them is, he says, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's not about doing amazing things for God. That's what false religion teaches you. You got to be something. You got to pull it off. You got to gain a reputation. You have to be enough. And whether you get that in a church or a mosque or a temple, or you just get it in secular society where people say you have to be smart enough, rich enough, healthy enough, attractive enough, whatever it is, that's false religion. But what Jesus says is it's not about that. It's about rejoicing that because of my work, you're saved, you're free, you're forgiven. He continues, I praise you, Father, Jesus says, the Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this is what you were pleased to do. He continues, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples privately and said, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. You understand what he's saying? He's saying this is God's work for you. This is the message of the scripture. This is the message of Jesus. It's not about becoming a better person or fixing your life or cleaning it up, but knowing that because Jesus has done it perfectly and given it to you, He's spoken it to you. He's shown it to you. Blessed are you because you know this. Blessed are you because you see this. The rest of the world is running around trying to make a reputation for themselves, trying to pull it off and have all the experiences and joy that they can possibly have in their 70 or 80 years that they live here. But you know something bigger than that. You know something more beautiful. You know something eternal. Something that satisfies the deepest cravings of your soul, that you're supposed to live forever and that life is supposed to be right. It's given to you. You see it. Thousands of people wish they could, but God revealed it to you. Your name is written in the book. And even the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, says this, that on that last day, the books will be opened and everything that every person has done will be revealed. But then there will be this other book, this book of life where your name, because of Jesus' grace, will be written. And Jesus will see you and see one who is righteous and will welcome you in for eternal life with him and God forever. Now he gives us some insight into exactly how this is going to happen in verse two of chapter 12. He says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. This is Jesus saying that the way that this is going to play out is that on the last day when Jesus comes back, all those who are dead are going to rise. Graves are going to be emptied. But then some of those people, those who did not believe in Jesus, they're going to go to hell forever. But for you, if you die before Jesus comes back, trusting in him for salvation, not only will you immediately go to be with him in his presence, but on that last day, your body will rise too. And you will rise to everlasting life. Body reunited with soul perfectly. No pain, no frustration, no mental illness, no back pain, no cancer, 
None of it. It's all going away because God has given you life as it always was meant to be. And this, friends, is the hope of the Christian faith. This is what we're holding on to. The forgiveness of sins, that's the mechanism that God uses to bring you into this. That you can live the way you always wanted to live. The way you were meant to live. To satisfy that deep craving of your soul that that believes that it should keep going. That I should wake up tomorrow, but that life should be perfect. God gives it to you, and not because of your work, but because of his. And so then he tells you, how do you get into this? Well, simply by being wise. He says, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. What does that mean? Well, what are wise people? We could argue exactly about what wisdom is, but I think we all understand where wisdom comes from. Wisdom comes from listening, right? You don't go and discover wisdom by yourself by going out in the woods and looking at trees. No, you you discover wisdom by listening to wise people, by reading good books. Well, there's one book that, that contains the words of life that if you are willing to listen to those words, you will become, as the Apostle Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, wise for salvation. As the Proverbs say, you will be wise when you have the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, to simply listen to God, to listen to his word. So that's what we do as a congregation. That's what you ought to do as Christians. You think about the primary thing that you do as a Christian, it's to hear God's word, to listen to him, to become wise for salvation through the message that he preaches to you. This is your deliverance. The Babylon that you live in, the Babylon that is trying to steal your faith and steal your children and steal your peaceful life, you will be delivered. Probably not because our nation is going to somehow become far more righteous than it is right now. Or even our church would become this amazing, beautiful, utopic place where everybody's perfect all the time. But because God gives us a hope and a future, he gives us peace with him so that we can know that life as it always was meant to be can be ours. And isn't it beautiful that this is what the book ends with? All the darkness of Daniel, the darkness of living in Babylon, the darkness of, of forces that are beyond Daniel's power, attacking him and his friends and their faith. Jesus' final message is, as you look out at the next 600 years of history and the thousands of years that will come after that, I know, I care, I'm here, I promise you eternal life. That's why at the very end of the book, isn't it a beautiful thing that that Jesus says to Daniel? Just go your own way and you'll get your inheritance. And that's the command for you too, Christian. Your life is not about being something special. It's about simply living in the place where you have been given with the gifts that God has given you to hear his word, to speak it back to others until Jesus brings you to be in life the way it was always meant to be. So that's the text that we looked at today. What I want to do then is ask this question. How does this fit into the greater context of Daniel? So after reading all of Daniel, what are we getting from this book? Um, There really are two points that I want to press on us today, and we'll take a, a good amount of time on each of them. The first thing that the book teaches us is about avoiding false religion. Avoiding false religion. Our tendency when we think about false religion is to think about what would probably be classified usually as world religion. So like, if you're a Christian, don't become uh, whatever type of world religion, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, whatever. Um, That's true, but that's not really what we're dealing with here in the book of Daniel. What we're dealing with in Daniel is something far more subtle. 
And I think there are a couple really good examples in this book that create a picture of what it means to avoid false religion as we live in Babylon. So think back through a couple of the narrative texts of this book. Remember in Daniel chapter one, Daniel avoids the king's food. He's avoiding the false religion of trying to fit in. What we learned from this book is that if we're going to be distinctly Christian, it's going to mean that we're going to live different from the world. That is hard. Because one of the the gospels, if you will, of our society is you got to fit in. Be like everybody else. Don't talk about religion in public, in a print, public conversation. Don't live in a way that's, that's weird, that makes people feel uncomfortable or makes them feel guilty. Don't do that. We can't, we can't follow that. That's a false religion. That's a gospel that says, if you do this, then you'll be okay. Well, what is that? That's religion, right? You behave this way and you'll be saved. And that's hard. That's hard because fitting in is something that is intrinsic to our culture, especially at a time like, like now, right, where the, the culture does kind of unify over this idea of Christmas, for example. There are some things you're just expected to do at Christmas. Maybe we don't fit in. Maybe we don't give in to nostalgia. Maybe we trust that, that God has us on a different trajectory. That might look like any number of things. But we have to be able to say, maybe my culture says this, or maybe this is my experience as a kid and I want to give that to my kids. Maybe this is what's expected, but I'm different. I'm called to be something different. I'm empowered to be something different. I'm loved into something different. Because the way of this world is going straight to hell, and I can't follow it. Another example would be chapter 3. Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? They're avoiding the false religion of equal authorities. The false religion that says, it's fine if you're a Christian, that's cool. Want your Bible and everything, fine. But you also got to trust all this stuff too. It has to be equal with your scriptures, or maybe even a little bit more authoritative than your scriptures. It could be the cultural narratives. It could be what the news tells us. Very often, I think it's something like the science, right? Isn't it interesting that we've like, put that into an embodied character, right? The science. Rather than having just a process, it's become a thing. We have to trust that thing, even though that thing, for all of its, its great value, and, and Christians have invested in science, maybe more than any people group on earth in world history, we see it as, as secondary to what God says in the scriptures. It shows us the glory of God, but it is not God. We can't trust anything above scripture. We have to see that, that, that the world is going to tempt us to say, well, it's okay if you do that as long as you also have this, but we can't fall into that. We follow scripture alone. And we run everything that we hear, whether it's from our friends or from the news or from a podcast or from our husband or wife, we run it through scripture. Say, what does scripture say about that? Because God is the ultimate authority. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to do. Right? As the king said to them, it's okay if you worship your God, just also bow to my God. They said, no, we can't do that. We only trust Jesus. Maybe a third example is Daniel in the lion's den. Of course, you remember the story if you've been in Sunday school. It's avoiding the false religion of adjustment. See, the world will say, it's okay if you, you like Jesus, just can you kind of change how you like Jesus a little bit for us? Like, it's okay to like some things about Jesus, but not all the things about Jesus. Why you got to be so invested? You seem like you're a little bit weird. (laughs) Why do you take yourself so seriously? And the temptation, of course, is that we should soften ourselves on what it means to be a Christian. 
Being a Christian becomes nothing more than checking a box on a census form, not a life lived in Christ with with everything that we do and think and value informed by the Bible. That's what Daniel experienced, right? Darius said, you can worship your God, but just like not right now, (laughs) not for 30 days. And then you can go back to worshiping your God however you want, but Daniel said, no, I can't adjust for you. I'm a Christian before I am anything else. And if you're going to ask me to change how I worship my Jesus, I'm not going to do it. And the same thing is true for us. We ought to say, what comes first in my life? Jesus. Always Jesus. Always his word. There may be any number of things, whether they be relational things, whether they be employment things, whether they just be functional things about my life, that will tempt me to say, Jesus is great and I love Jesus, but just like he's going to be in second place for a little bit. No. Not if you want to be a Christian. If you want to be something that is culturally Christian, okay. If you want to be faithful to scripture, that cannot be accepted. And so Daniel presses on us, like, avoid false religion. Even a false religion that calls itself Christianity. Go back to true scriptural religion. The religion that says Jesus has bought you at a price, but that means that he owns you now. You are a slave of righteousness. Bought to do what is right. Bought to be different. To be a light in the darkness. We have to be honest that, that this is so easy for us to fall into in our culture. I mean, I fall into it, right? Like I get to preach on every, on every Sunday and, and it maybe seems like I've got this all figured out, but like Daniel has been messing with me on this stuff. How many things that I fall into just because that's the cultural norm. That's just what people do. I've been convicted of that. But the beautiful message, of course, is at the end of the book that despite the fact that we don't live like Christians in Babylon, Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. And Jesus is coming again. And he has forgiven you of that. But that doesn't mean that you just walk out of here with, without a changed heart or a changed mind about the things that you live in. You avoid false religion. Maybe to say this in a, a succinct way, false religion is just always very subtle. It's not a big attack. It's not a, a, a big push against us. It's always little things, little pulls, little, little pushes that... That slowly but surely, week after week, year after year, push us away from Jesus. It's pretty rare where somebody who is a strong Christian the very next day says, I throw it all away. It doesn't usually happen like that. Babylon slowly indoctrinates, slowly presses so that people fall away from Jesus. Let's not be those people. Let's hold on to scripture. The second big thing that I want this to see in this book is God's control of history. So interspersed within all the uh, narrative sections are a bunch of visions, right? Uh, There's actually quite a bit of visionary literature in this. Chapter 2, 5, 7, 8, 9, and then 10 through 12 are all visions. They're all predictive prophecy that God gives to Daniel. Um, That, of course, is very unique, but that should therefore make us perk up our antenna a little bit. Like, why is God doing this? Why is he peppering this book with these types of visions? Um, I think there are a couple things that we should learn about this. First of all, we should know that uh, God knows the future. Right? That seems maybe like a pretty simple thing. Of course, we talk about God being omniscient. That means he knows all things, but like he does. He knows the future. He knows hundreds of years of world history before it even happens. Which, by the way, is a really good evidence for the truth of the scripture. If you've ever had somebody ask you, like, how do you know the Bible is true? I say, well, I know that God wrote it. They say, well, how do you know that God wrote it? You say, because there's stuff in it that only God could know. Who could predict 600 years of world history? Only God. And he did. In Daniel, he predicted 
kingdom after kingdom, specific machinations of political entities within those kingdoms. I mean, God knows. And that means God knows right now, right? God knows your future. He knows the future of our nation. He knows the future of, of the next 5,000, 500,000 years. It doesn't matter how long it's going to be. God knows. Which means he's giving you the resources right now to prepare yourself and your family and the next generation of this congregation to be ready for that future. God knows. God cares. And he also knows that whatever you're going through right now, he knows where it's going to end. He knows that there's purpose behind it. It's so easy when we suffer to feel like, why is this happening to me? God knows the answer to that question. And he may not tell you, because frankly, you might act differently if you knew the answer. But he might be molding you or shaping somebody you know or blessing your community. I don't know the answer, but I know that God knows the answer. And we have to hold on to that. But there's a second bigger idea, I think, that, that God is pressing on us. It's to know his word, right? It's to know that when God puts something in the Bible, it's for us to, to study and to learn from and to trust. You remember that place in the book where Daniel is looking at the, the book of Jeremiah, the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, and he says, oh, Jeremiah, God prophesied that the exile will be for 70 years. And so Daniel starts praying about it and says, well, it's almost 70 years. It's time for God to come through. The same is true for us. God is showing the breadth, the power of his word. And he's saying to us, now trust this. You might think you know better. You might think you have a better idea, but I know better because I know way more than you know. And when you think about what your life looks like and what you believe, that's an important thing to keep coming back to. Because how you spend your money or your time or your energy, how you organize your life, who your friends are, who you marry, all these things. We have our own ideas about how best to do those things. But there is one who knows more. And he has spoken. And he's given us direction on those things. We ought to trust that. We also ought to trust what I spent the first half of the sermon talking about that God has a book, not just the Bible, but a book with your name in it, that he is using as his, his north star as he guides your life. The, the psalmist says it like this. He says about God, your, eye, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knows your ultimate future. And God is orchestrating everything, the good and the bad, every interaction, every moment, every job, every experience in order to get you to where he wants you, with him forever. God doesn't know just your future. He knows the ultimate future, which is to bring everything to its culmination, to, to get rid of evil and to bring in life as it was always supposed to be. And so what we need to do is to trust him, to make ourselves and our congregation a place that is always going back to the word. So let me finish with this then. Um, Daniel is, uh, it's right on the nose for a lot of us. I think after 10 weeks of doing this series, you know, you predict, you plan a, a sermon series and you, you kind of think how it's going to go. And after 10 weeks of doing Daniel, like, I'm, I'm ready to be done with it because it is, it, it's really pressure packed, right? It, it presses down on you in a way that many biblical books don't. It really asks you the question, like, are you going to be a, an authentic Christian? Or are you just going to call yourself a Christian? Are you going to live like a North American and, and call yourself a Christian or are you going to be a Christian in North America? Um, and that's, that's hard because it's so easy for us to, to trust in the worldly structures that are around us that give us comfort, that give us pleasure, that give us entertainment. And while nothing's inherently wrong with those things, they're not necessarily from God. 
And it's hard for us to look at how we spend our money and how we spend our time and how we organize our relationships and all these things and, and realize that maybe some of those things need like major overhauls. That's really hard. Like I feel this too, right? I'm convicted of my North American upper middle class lifestyle. That is not always in line with God's word. And so on the one hand, as I study through this book, I'm like at the end of it thinking, oh man, this has been heavy, eh? But then I see God's hand because in a sense, that's exactly what this series was supposed to do. You know, some of you have been asking this year, we didn't really celebrate Advent all that much. Uh, we have an Advent wreath now that's up here, which reminds us of, of course, that, that Christmas is coming. And, and for some of you, the fact that the Advent candle, candles weren't up here and that we weren't doing an Advent sermon series uh, was troubling you. Um, I understand. There's definitely nostalgia there and, and I'm sympathetic to that. But I want you to know something. Advent's not about Christmas coming, really the way that we think of it. Advent actually is a, is a, a season of the church here is meant to build the tension that Daniel actually built for us. The tension of saying there is something messed up about this world and we're part of it. So please send us a savior. That's what Advent's supposed to do. It's not supposed to, supposed to be about singing beautiful Christmas carols and thinking about little babies in mangers. That's for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Advent's about building this tension, and haven't you felt it? So God be praised that the next two Sundays, we're going to hear about the baby who came in a manger to save it. The baby who lived in the same world that, that we lived in, and though we always wanted it to be better, he could actually make it better. Even though we feel like the world's going to hell in a handbasket, Jesus says, yeah, but I'm redeeming people out of it. So if you're feeling the tension, repent. Think about how God's word can, can infiltrate your life and change you. But then come back next week and come on Christmas Eve and come on Christmas Day to hear the beautiful gospel that in Jesus, it has all been made right. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for letting us live through the decades of Daniel's life with him through the scriptures. So we can see his experience, apply it to our own, and also find your truth in it. Lord Jesus, I pray for me and our congregation as we live in this society that challenges us, that you would keep us close to you, that you would send your angels concerning us to guide us in all our ways, to protect us, to keep giving us your word so that we can be saved forever, and that you would also make us a light in this darkness that your word would not just come into our ears, but also come out of our mouths for the sake of the people of this community and this city. We want to be agents of change for the better. So make us that. We pray that you would bless the rest of our celebrations, looking forward to Christmas, as we get to hear in even more detail the beautiful way you chose to break the tension of sin by sending an unexpected savior, a baby in a manger for us. Oh, come, let us adore him. Amen.